0: Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. I hope you all had a splendid Christmas, and I'm hoping that you all be looking forward to a joyous New Year. Anyhow, we're continuing.
1: And in order to get the New Year off to a good start?
0: More, what did you call it? uh, Beverage bonanza. Beverage
1: bonanza. (laughs) Beverage bonanza part two.
0: yes. Uh, starting with a, a dear friend, Alice Firing, uh, who is uh, an amazingly knowledgeable wine writer. <laughs> she says she's been storing the information up since she was a child. So anyhow, so it's not surprising, I guess, that she uh, knows about natural wine, which is being, uh, a, it's like a tsunami in uh, on, on the wine lists anymore. Um, let's listen to her explain what it is and why it's so popular. You know, we always love talking to Alice firing, and um, she's she's such a source of inter interesting information. I mean, not this dull um, <laughs> the stuff that, that most people write wine about with wines, and um, oh, we've interviewed you so many times by. Like Georgia wines, and and this, this you're on trend. This current one is called Natural Wine for the People, and um, it's like a handbook. It's the size that you can put it into uh, your backpack or whatever and take it with you and and seek out these wines. It will tell you what what natural wine really is, and and the, it's an adorable book. Alice, the illustrations are also. Amazing, weren't they?
1: Did you do those? I mean, they're just... No. Oh, no, I wish
2: I did do them. But, you yeah. know, did, and uh, he is based in Japan, and he was fabulous. He really was fabulous. I, when I first saw them, I was just laughing my way
0: through. The oh, I love them, yes.
1: So. Now, the, the, interesting, the interesting thing is that this this is not only a book about natural wines, we'll get to that, but, it, but it's a very informative book about the whole process of developing and making wine.
0: Yes. Right. So,
1: so even if you don't like the idea of natural wines, you should, you should buy a copy and read it because you'll learn a lot about wine. <laughs> I how, don't like how,
0: that. How,
1: how come you got to know so much?
0: She started uh, in I was a high chair. I've <laughs> been doing it for a long time. I can't believe you were drinking wine in your high chair. <laughs>
3: well,
0: yeah, I was. That's, <laughs> ver- that's very well, French, right?
2: Uh, you very French from, uh, <laughs> you know, from uh, first generation, uh you the pale people. So, you no, know, it's like definitely not a French household.
0: <laughs> uh-huh.
2: But it was just definitely not a, a household that there was any taboo about wine drinking. So, wine drinking happened on Friday night and Saturday afternoon. And, you know, nobody thought about not giving it to... uh Whoever could drink out of a glass.
1: <laughs> so. Now let, let me let me give you a starting point here, because uh, other, otherwise we'll just talk and talk and talk. As for now, now I'll turn the sound off. <laughs> so, people have told me that one of the best winemaking academies in the world, which is called University of California at Davis, the people mm-hmm. who graduate from that are not really winemakers; they're chemists. Hmm, I've
3: heard of
1: that. Because well, you, you you might have even said it before I did, probably. <laughs> but the, the, so so, it, it's a sort of a this is a on just saying. There are people around the world who are making, and here's what to me that means. Go ahead. Uh,
2: for me, that means that you have properly farmed grapes meaning from some sort of organic viticulture and you have a grape bunch with their stems and you have a a receptacle to make your wine in and you have a receptacle to raise your wine in and then you've got a way to put your wine into the bottle and that's basically all you need to make wine Um, so that's what I've That's the properly made wine, and within that, there are all sorts of possibilities. You can make choices about how much extraction you want, um, how much just gentleness you want to treat the grapes, whether you want to use the stems, whether you want to take them off, whether you want to make your wine in clay or in old wood or in fiberglass or in porcelain. You have all these all these um, decisions to make, but the point is that you're using yourself and the grape and not going to the additive store and buying enzymes and yeast and bacteria, or you're not using excessive temperature control, you're
0: not so basically that's a properly made one. And people Sorry. you say don't really r- realize how much of this. Sp- Foreign stuff is in the wine that you're drinking.
2: That's right. Uh, there is an awful lot. And even if there's not a lot, there's a lot that one can do with the machines to make a wine very stable and very uninteresting. So um, right now, that those machines like centrifuges uh, or reverse osmosis are being used to make wines that are not sulfured as if that's the only thing that is important to a natural wine.
1: But, the sol- uh, but sol- there's
2: a lot of stuff that can be done.
1: But sulfur is kind of important, right? I mean, it yes, it sulfur is I mean, important. It, it, seri- it seriously could get in the way.
3: Yeah, it is a useful
2: tool. Um, certainly, it's used. Even people who don't use it in winemaking use it in cleaning. The real fanatics will not use it in cleaning.
3: Uh, well, um
2: but and sometimes if you just clean your utensils with sulfur and water, that's enough sulfur protection for the wine. But when you use too much and for and that is actually a little goes a long way. But if you use too much, it really affects the life of a wine. It kind of renders it inert, um, tight, not expressive. So yeah, it is. A, it. In too much, you know, when you use it in excessive amounts, it really—I don't know—neutralizes the wine to me, or neuters it, I should say.
1: Now, there's another, there's another big issue. I, I think I got from your writing that that being careful how you treat the dirt is is also really important. But I, I yeah. but I do, but I do wonder about this biodynamic thing. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> I can talk about it, though. I'm wondering about what you wonder about. Maybe after I talk about it, you can tell me what you're wondering. I, so biodynamic is just, um, for me, it's just another way of farming organically. It, it is basic, But it is just much more serious. It's more, um, yeah, it's just more attuned to nature so it is based on using nine treatments and these nine treatments are derived from either animal mineral or vegetable and they are prepared in a dynamizer and i frankly can't tell you i'm not going to actually tell you whether i believe in the dynamizer I or was not i just ask you that. <laughs> i actually don't care you know yeah. it's like i know that i but the dynamizer so it's basically it's, uh, you put it in a centrifuge, uh, not really a centrifuge, but there's a centrifugal force in there as you're dynamizing, like, sort of like, mm-hmm. six times this way, six times that way. I don't really know exactly how many times you go in one way or the other. But it does have an effect on the substance, and these substances, whether they're made from nettles or chamomile or, um dung and then there's another uh, other very yeah another very one of the famous preparations yes is um, is the 500 where you stuff a cow horn with dung and you bury it on winter solstice coming Right. right up and then you dig it up on the equinox. Now this sounds very woo-woo, right? It sounds really really super crazy, <laughs> it does. It does. and it, it yet yeah, it's, it's like a poster child for the weirdness of science. <laughs> but what happens is that by the time you take it out on the equinox, it has it has transformed. It has fermented, and it has transformed into this beautiful crumbly substance that has no no. Uh, resemblance to its original form, and so you take this and you put it in the dynamizer and you spray a tiny little bit. And um, it see everybody who uses it really just as like a magical substance. So even though it sounds spiritual and pagan, yeah. In well, effect, it has Rand- a true effect and transition, and, and, and yeah, it's I, I quite a beautiful you, yeah. yeah, I
0: suspected this because, I mean, Randall Graham, and you don't have to go about this naked either, do you? <laughs> right. No, you don't have to do it naked. <laughs> no, but I suppose.
1: Now, the, the interesting thing is that we, we were at the Cullen Estate in in, mm-hmm. west, in Western Australia. Oh, yeah, that was... Mm-hmm. And, and the the winemaker told us that the, that he and the owner agreed... That if they had not gone biodynamic, their vineyard would have been out of business.
0: Yeah, dead, totally dead.
1: He said because they, they, their grape yield, their grape yields were going down. Everything everything was headed in a downward direction, mm-hmm. and, it, and going biodynamic totally changed that direction. It rescued the whole vineyard. Mm-hmm. And,
2: yeah, and those are beautiful a, vineyards. Fania did an amazing job there. Yeah,
1: but, it, but it's not an old vineyard. I mean, it's not it's not like monoculture. Has been going on for a couple of hundred years, so the so the so the soil is dead. Right. But but it but it's not good.
2: But also, I I believe there in Western Australia they they've are. got a lot of problems with the high salinity in their soils, and also they were probably really. Tight i was only there like you after it went biodynamic but i remember hearing the stories about it coming back and you hear those stories all the time
3: Mm. when
2: you hear people go from organic to biodynamic they're not usually as dramatic but i hear all the time about the acidities being better and the balance being better and the yields being more in balance um and whether or not it is the biodynamics or whether this kind of farming fosters a higher awareness by the vineyard keeper. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah. So it, it, either or, it. I have yet to see the person who says no difference.
0: Right, right. I, I agree with you, Alison. I think that what it, if we have to look past what we might think is quirky to just get to the essence of of the uh, of, of what happens? Right, because
2: when you come down to it, you're not harming the earth. You're not. It's not chemical farming, so it's another way of organic farming. Like, okay, fine, <laughs> mm-hmm. sounds spiritual, but you know, get past it. Look at the results. So no, no, the results
1: me, can be me, beautiful. Let me go a slightly different direction. We were in we were in the Barossa Valley. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think the winemaker was Grant Burge, and mm-hmm. I st- and I still have the photographs because he had roses planted at the end of all the rows.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was for something I can't remember what that was for. But then we we talked to somebody else about about spraying the vineyard to keep the pests down, and they said we just have a lot of owls. <laughs> and an, an an adult owl can consume you you have no idea how many rodents. Rodents. <laughs> an, an owl on the wing can so is is this part of natural line making?
2: But to, to be able to do um you
1: know
2: uh pest management with yeah. your pests
1: with, with your owls.
2: Yeah. Well that that's more sustainable um well But it is certainly part of it all. Like you try to figure out what is a natural balance for your vineyard. So if you have a monoculture, you're really not going to be having any owls in there. But so what can you do to your environment? However, you know, if owls are not necessarily in your habitat and you bring them in, they might cause more trouble. Um, oh, okay. so you have to figure out what is what makes sense for your own habitat and help f- foster that balance. And that is very much about biodynamics and about biodiversity. And of course, um, since you're not using any pesticides in uh, an organic, or biodynamic vineyard, like how mm-hmm. else do you get rid of those by having a healthy balance? wells <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, and and the roses are there because they are usually the first size sign of I mean, Yeah, food. Exactly, yeah,
0: no, and, yeah. They're the
2: canary in the coal mine. Yeah, basically.
1: yeah. And a question.
0: Yeah. Now, um, you you of course emphasize that the the main difference is the the taste, the flavor of the of the wine, but you also and, and carry a little further, saying that in natural wines. Um, your last taste will be different from your first taste, and I didn't understand that. Meaning that,
2: actually, this is something that Tony Cotorio always, always says, with a conventional wine, your first taste is the best, and your last taste is the worst. Oh, right. So basically, okay. the wine does not get any better. I see. With a natural wine, it keeps on changing every time. Why is and that? Because it's, you know, it's more because complex Well, because there's nothing there fixing the taste in place.
1: So with no or low
2: sulfur, we're talking with a living, um, a living substance that keeps on changing and interacting with the oxygen. And so, so that and it goes back to you know you have a tight wine you put it in a decanter to open it up so it can react to the oxygen, and you will really see that a great deal when it comes to natural wine.
1: Now let, let's go to a different country, just for the hell of it. Yeah, and we, sure. And, and we, we visited with the people at Rhoda. I knew you were going to. That was my next question. <laughs> and, 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 and the people at Rhoda in uh, in, in, uh, in Rioja. In Rioja. Yeah. The, it, the interesting thing was that their project was relatively new, so they were so they were getting they were getting grapes, but they would not use them. To make their own wine, they were they were growing grapes and then selling them to somebody else so they could get rid of them, yeah. <laughs> and help finance their project, because they, they they wanted to make wines that were specific to their region and their vine growing practices, which included no irrigation in the now, Rioja, Alice which is addresses which, that is, which is which is which yeah. is really something, and I I'm sure I'm sure it's in I'm sure it's she in the book. She addresses that, yeah. But that, but I wanted to make sure that. Not everybody's going to read the book, so I wanted to make sure that you realize that that we didn't miss that out.
0: Right. Well, yeah, I mean, you think it's best not to give any water, right? Yes.
2: Um, Ultimately, basically, I want to plant where you don't need to. Um, Or if you are in an arid situation, you plant wine, grapes that are... um, drought resistant right. on rootstock that's drought resistant um you know you the grapes are probably grapes are probably the only fruit that really doesn't that really can fend for itself if you plant it in the right place so to to waste our water resources on growing grapes for wine i think is it's um, frivolous and uh yeah, it's actually criminal. Yeah, you give a good example. In California.
1: California, right? Yeah. Yeah, you, you, yeah, that you guys from California. <laughs> hmm? Yeah. So you, they don't like me there. I, I <laughs> can't, to, like can't imagine. Can't imagine you. They're probably on the list shortly behind hey. behind Robert, Robert Parker. <laughs> <laughs> I remember but, a Robert Parker book, probably better than all your other books.
0: <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> That's probably the first time we interviewed you. Actually, but, but, right. but
1: seriously, exactly. now now we have everybody sold on the idea that I have to go natural wine drinking, which is the f- thing that follows natural wine making. Well, but, right. but you, you you have a lot of advice in the book on where you can find organic wines. How how you even? can find them in the first place. Natural wines. I'm sorry. Natural Mm -hmm. wines. So talk to us a little bit about making your natural wine cellar.
2: Making your natural wine cellar. So there are a lot of myths around, and one of them is that natural wine doesn't age, which, of course, is absolutely not true. Uh, There are a lot of natural wines that are meant to be quickly drunk, like in the first year or two, and there are so many others that if you put down you know, like you can have a beautiful cellar from like a 5 five year to 20 year cellar.
0: Yeah, this is and, a good part of your book, by the way, a section that I thought was really very valuable is you have myth and truth and you go through you. the myth and truth of the yeah. natural wines, yeah. yeah.
2: And of course natural wines can age and I don't know where that, well I do know where that came from, but it's false. <laughs> so, uh, and I, there's I'd have to go back to my book to see exactly what what I recommended, but I gave a lot of examples of kinds of natural wines that do age. Uh, some fabulous Chinons, and especially from Chinons and Burgoy's from the Loire. Um, Chen Blanc certainly ages quite beautifully. There are wonderful wines in Italy that are that have always traditionally like um Trinchero, they started making wines in the nineteen fifties, they never use any sulfur. And if you go back and you taste the wines from the fifties or the sixties, they're stunning. And those are certainly quite old at this point. So I would go about building a natural wine cellar the way I would really any I would I would pepper it in with some great burgundy, some great Beaujolais. <laughs> Yeah, some Bourgois, some Chinon. There's some very age worthy natural wines now from California. Uh so in Katori, uh, so in Caleb Leisure, I think his wines are going to age beautifully. Pietrohican up in Vermont. And one can really absolutely build a beautiful natural wine cellar. And actually right now we're seeing a number of natural wines showing up at auction.
0: No. The, you're not saying that you're not saying across the board. I mean, I just want to emphasize that that natural wines by by nature you know, are are nature, actually no. great. I mean, there's some good, and I've had some really awful ones. And yeah, and, and I'd like and to try the that ones you think for were wonderful, hmm? great. Right.
2: And some for early consumption, and some for you know lay down. And yeah, it's um, I I do have this. Newsletter, the firing line, and i'm always so there, there are like twenty recommendations in an issue, and in those recommendations are always recommendations of ones that you can lie down um, and sell her up so it's like anything, not every wine is meant to be aged, whether it's conventional or natural I thought it was, so very, I, thought
1: it was I thought it was very interesting that you picked you picked the Loire region as being particularly interesting. For natural wines, do you do you think it has anything to do with the fact that the the, the wines are aged below, below the where the where the grapes are grown? I mean, I really, I, really, I really think it's such an odd situation that you have these bluffs on either side of the river, and that and that's where the wineries are, and, mm-hmm. the, and the grapes are growing on top of that. Right, well,
2: some well, you're talking about over in. So um, when there's limestone and so when there's limestone and one can easily carve their cave.
1: Yeah, right.
2: Um but when you go to the Loire uh where the like in Anjou noir, like where it's mostly schist, you're not going to find that because it's you, because you can't really drill down the shift, <laughs> no, So it's not every place in the Loire that is able. I think the Loire basically because it's cool climate um, I think that cool climate actually ages better um, slower to develop and um, you know, the thicker the skins of the grape and the tannin um, I think that has a lot to do with it, the terroir certainly but um and just because it makes some of my favorite wine <laughs> <laughs> there you go, why not? <laughs> and I love like old chinon I just love old chinon I,
1: rem- so good. I remember we we were in one winery where where they where they had wines from the previous century, just uh, uh, just yeah. a few and they, they 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 only opened them for for new grandchildren, I think
0: yeah, and so it was all family tradition. Very dusty bottles and things like that was, there was I mean, You was, might get a nasty surprise just... or two If you did that, <laughs> like, <with> that. <laughs> like that champagne that somebody saved up And gave us for our wedding oh, It, yeah, it, it tasted know, like cherry well, well. <laughs> It was
1: awful you know, well, what, what can you do The, the, the worst one was, was Sid Queller If you remember Sid, Sid gave me a bottle from a really serious collector Here in Pittsburgh Who had given it to him on on the on the occasion of my fiftieth birthday, <laughs> and uh, and I opened it and drank it and spat
3: <laughs> inst- inst-
1: <laughs> instantly, because <laughs> he, he I guess he had knowing Sid he probably didn't like to drink wine so he probably had it standing up in the back of a kitchen cupboard <laughs> somewhere somewhere behind a range.
0: Well, Alice, firing, I think that this book is um, a. a handbook and also an inspiration and uh, talking Do you always makes me want to go drink wine
2: <laughs> Okay, <laughs> or, you <Me> know, too.
0: <laughs> but, but you know for, for not that reason but for, because it's you just you love it so much and you find so much interesting to to uh, you've stored up so much information don't you sometimes wonder how much you learned and know about wine huh
2: well, sometimes it's shocking, and I go on and I go on, and I'm like, oh, my God, I guess I know something about it. <laughs>
0: I think I, you do. <laughs> I,
2: but I, I must say that um, things are cyclical, and uh, I am back at the point of realizing exactly how much I don't know. And I think this happens, you know, the more you know, the more you don't know. Right. Or Because just knowledge is infinite. But I do know something <laughs> I, well, will, I, I will grant you that thank well, you it, well, all, <laughs> thank you for
0: noticing it's, <laughs> it's, thank you for
1: noticing it, that's funny it, it's a, it, it's it's all so much fun the world the world of wine is such an interesting world anyway and uh was it last year or the year before we went to the the rothschild manor oh, in near, near it's near oxford and it's and it's own it's owned by the one branch of the rothschild family and uh the the interesting thing is it was what struck me most wasn't the wine it was a sculpture they had outside outside oh, right. the <laughs> the, the, uh, the property which was a tree and all, all 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 the all the leaves on the tree were wine bottles.
0: Yeah, but you know that was
1: we the met, same. We, yeah, we, the, scu-
0: we, the sculptor. We yeah, met. Yeah, in yeah
1: the, we met the artist
0: in, the, in the, where was it in Bilbao?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Bilbao. I said, we, we we know your sculpture, <laughs> but most people hadn't told her that in a long time.
0: Well, Alice, thank you so much um, for yet another book, and um, also for talking to us. It's always yeah. a great pleasure. I've it is
2: always a pleasure
0: for me.
1: I've had a smile on my face from ear to ear.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, Alice, when right. I want to read the novel, remember. <laughs> I'll let you know. Okay. When, when it ever gets old. <laughs> oh, Alice, thank you again. Oh, bye bye. Thank
1: you. Okay, bye bye. Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation.net The, the, the producer snuck in a break <laughs> and got, got a little confused. So, so we're, we're back on the menu radio is back. Second, second track of this morning's program, S- the Scotland's Best Gin. Now, I, I didn't even know they really did much with gin in Scotland. I thought it was always Scotch. But apparently, very close to the very northern tip of the highlands of Scotland is a small brewery called Rock Rose. Rock, no. rose gin, yeah. no. rock Rose Gin, rock rose distillery. The location is Dunnett Bay, which is pr- probably six houses and a distillery. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the amazing thing is that it's it's, it's hand-bottled in porcelain containers, so you can't see what's inside, and you have a big surprise when you pour it because the gin inside is blue. <laughs> but, not, but not for nothing was it this year's best... In Scotland, so you should certainly get some. We we have some, and it's almost gone. But that's just the way things are around here. Anyway, here's Martin Murray, who together with his wife founded this distillery, and he's obviously being very successful. And we wish him even more success in the future. Martin Murray. Welcome to On The Menu Radio, and uh, give give us a few words in the Scottish language, if you would.
4: Oh, Scottish language, it's always I. I is a big word in Scotland, you're always I when people are asking you if you're fine and um, would you like a drink. It's <laughs> nice. Would
1: you like a dram, right? Yeah, a
4: dram, that's right, a wee, a wee dram.
1: Well, well we're, we're going to finish up. Talking about Rock Rose Gin, mm-hmm. which just won some very dramatic awards in the in the UK gin business, but I have a different question. Scotland is known for a different kind of alcoholic beverage, so so why gin? Very
4: interesting. Um, when we were looking at creating our own drink, we we looked at spirits, we looked at beer, and for us we really wanted to be able to reflect our local environment, our local area into the product and gin really lends itself to that. So we take berries from the forest, mint from the garden, over there from the cliffs, and we make a product that reflects caithness. So the big appeal with gin was that um, we could make it uh, a taste of caithness. Um, I was also steered to it by my wife, who is a gin drinker, so I think um, she may have had an influence on me when we were at the planning stage um, because she loves gin it's, um her favorite drink, and um, you know, rock rose five, six years ago when we were doing it, it was kind of unconceivable that we could make a product that would go to um, all around the world. And it's great that something that is still a taste of is using these local berries. Now um, let, let, let's make sure that
1: right. pe- people who haven't been to Scotland as many times as I have know where Caithness is, and 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 just to put it as a dot on the map for, for those people around the mm-hmm. world who don't think maps like I do. Ca- so, so Caithness, we are, Caithness is the last piece of Scotland before the before before there's no more Scotland.
4: <laughs> absolutely, we are the most northerly distillery on mainland Scotland and. Because we're so far north, I don't think anyone's going to be taking that title from us any time soon. <coughs> we're in a very remote village of 300 people, and I always joke that the nearest McDonald's is uh, 100 miles away, so it's uh, it's very, very remote.
1: To, to put it another way, it's the John O'Groats, which is the other end of, <laughs> of Land's End, Land, Land's End being the furthest southwest, and John and O'Groats, Mid-Burn. which isn't even a town, right?
4: Yeah,
1: that's right. It's is, is, the, is the other end of it, and then you get the Orkneys and Shetlands islands off of there, and places where yeah. the British used to used to hide their naval armada, and it, and it's that's cold. Right.
4: We're more further north than John Goats, which is
1: uh, <laughs> Yeah, but, it, but it's 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 well up there, and it, it's it's in, it's intriguing that local ingredients make the difference because. Oh,
0: the, the, botanicals in it are extraordinary from my point of view of taste I because I've never been a gin drinker but I love this
4: thank you very much Anne it's it's a gin that's a classic London dry gin and you know when we spoke to people six years ago they were I'm not really a gin drinker and I said okay if you're going to give up on gin try one more and then give up try our gin before you give up and We managed to convert a lot of people because our gin is not so perfumey. It's very well balanced. It's more
0: intricate
4: and people love it. They love that you can pull out these berries, these citrus flavours and a little bit of spice. And that complexity and that balance really works for people. There's a lot of thought gone into it. And, you know, we were nervous when people got to try it the first time because at that point, the gin had two fans, myself and Claire, and then we opened up our... Um, taste preference our experiments to the world and thankfully touchwood everybody liked what we were doing and um, it's been reflected in the success we've had
1: now does rock rose mean something in particular
4: it comes from one of the first walks that i did so um i used to go for walks with brian lamb the uk's oldest established herbalist who just so happens to be my brother's father-in-law We went for walks in the forest and then on the cliffs. And he showed me this uh, uh, plant growing in the cracks of the cliffs called Rodeola rosea. Um, He made me taste the leaf, and when I tasted the leaf, it was horrible, absolutely unsuitable for using for gin. And he asked me what I thought, and I said, "Oh, um, I don't know. I I don't think it's right for our gin." And he said, "No, it's foul. Now try this." And he chopped the root, and it was delicious. It was a really earthy rose flavour. Um, a little bit astringent, so when we distilled it, it took the astringency and left us that lovely flavour, so it's a rose that grows in the rocks, and that's where the name Rock Rose comes from. Oh, uh-huh. Now,
1: now what, what what, was it that you just won awards for? They were, they were pretty special awards.
4: Absolutely, so it's a big night in the Scottish gin industry, where um, over 600 gins are entered into the awards, there's uh, a big... Um, award ceremony. We were nominated for two of the bigger awards, the, the Best Distilled Gin, and then the big award, um, the Gin Distillery of the Year. And we won both, which was absolutely incredible. <laughs> I, I, I just said it there, and I still have to like, just check myself that what I was saying was correct. But yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. We're just so thrilled. A small distillery in a very remote part of Scotland... Self-funded, self-started, and we won the big one.
0: You know, it's it's amazing. Well, yeah, no, you guys aren't going to be probably bringing this up, but but um, I I know you you appreciate how um, how wonderful the packaging is. Talk to us about the special bottle and design and box.
4: Ah, so we worked with some great designers at the start, and Claire, my wife, was in charge of making sure the design was outstanding. My background is engineering, so my job was to make sure the liquid was, was outstanding. So Queer worked really hard. I think they did a great job with the packaging. Um, it's a ceramic bottle. It's screen printed. It's hand waxed, hand-numbered. Really iconic bottle. When you see it next to colored glass gin bottles, it stands out on the shelf. And um, we love that because the ceramic protects the gin from sunlight. It protects those delicate flavors. It also plays back to the history of the Dutch Geneva craft bottles. Um, it looks oh, is that right? so feels this... premium. Yeah, that's right. It's that kind of throws back to the history of gin.
1: So the original Geneva that was brought over by by William of Orange ca- yeah, came in for... came in the, those style bottles.
4: Yeah, that's right. And even now you'll see a lot of the Dutch Geneva is still in those ceramic bottles. It's, it's great, and for us it gave us a point of difference. But it also um, was something that my wife really believed in so when we had to launch it we were given feedback initially that gin should be in a coloured glass bottle because that's all the other gins are in so pick a different colour and do that but we fully believed that if we were going to do something that we loved then if it failed then okay we did something we loved and we were wrong but we had to do something we loved because if we did it the other way and we did something that everyone told us and it failed then we would have been really kicking ourselves so Claire went with that, and I'll give you a little story. At the dinner table one night, I said to Claire, I said, you know if nobody buys a bottle of Rockwell's gin, it's because you've done a lousy job of the design.
1: <laughs> 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 and you're still alive? She,
4: she No, she turned instantly and said to me, if nobody buys a second bottle of her gin, it's because you've done a lousy job of the distillation. <laughs> <laughs> so I've never brought it up since, but it, it's what makes us a good team. We have very different um, specialties, and we uh, we respect each other and we trust
1: each other to do that, and that's a big part of our success. Now, here here's a, here's a different question. Over over the years, years and years and years, dec- decades and decades and decades, the uh, the spirits business was was held back in a way because it was taxed so heavily. And it it, it occurs to me to ask you that maybe it's a silly question, but Are there a lot of obstacles you have to get over in order to be able to open a gin distillery in Scotland?
4: Yeah, there's still those barriers there, actually. So you're right, tax is a big issue. So where microbreweries get tax relief, spirits, microdistilleries don't get that relief. Um, The other big barrier was that you had to have a minimum still size to get a distillery licence or a warehouse licence. So um, those two barriers one still exists, the tax still exists, it's still a challenge for small distilleries, um, but the minimum still size was successfully challenged by London Distillery, and um, that opened the gates for other micro-distilleries to start up. So fortunately, we can do it. There's, there's only the one buyer that's taxed now, and if we can tell people about the thought, the care, and um, the quality that is our product's in, we can fight against the big guys who pay the same taxes as us and have bigger budgets, but we can demonstrate the quality and the care that's gone into the final product.
1: Now, let's let's talk about drinking Rock Rose. Is it is, is it is it a mixing gin or is it a sipping gin?
4: We're we're your classic British gin and tonic drinkers, so we designed the drink to be a gin and tonic. Now, what's really interesting is that. We're not from the spirits industry at all. So when we developed the gym, we were told you have to have a perfect serve. You know, Hendrix has the cucumber serve and we needed to have a perfect serve. And As a husband and wife team, we could not agree on the perfect serve. And it actually got us thinking, if we have both such strong um, passion about our own perfect serve, then let's leave it like that. Let's tell people our perfect serves and ask them to find their own. So Claire has hers. Slightly longer than mine, three parts tonic to one part gin with a curl of orange peel. So it's very refreshing, very sexy, lovely on a summer's day or any sunny day. Um, And then for me, I really like earthy, smoky notes. So I toast rosemary and I have my gin and tonic, two parts tonic to one part gin. And it's punchier, but it's that earthy smokiness. And I just absolutely love it that way. Um, and the great thing for me is rosemary grows outside our kitchen window, so I don't have to hunt for any citrus fruit in the winter. I just open the windows, chop a little bit of rosemary, and I'm I'm good to go.
1: <laughs> now, now, talk talk to us about availability uh, around the world. About big in Spain,
4: huh? we just launched in Spain in uh, January. Spain's been always been the go-to market for gin brands, and we've tried to find the right partner there for some time, and uh, it's never been the right opportunity, but. We just landed our distribution agreement to launch in Spain in the New Year, so we're really excited about that. Now, when we launched, um, we thought that success for us would be selling some bottles of gin in Edinburgh and Glasgow, because we're really remote, we're not from the industry, we're new to this. All of these thoughts in our mind meant that we would struggle to sell outside a 100-mile radius. Um, So... When we took off, everything was fine. And then um, within four months, we had a call from Germany and we didn't know how to export. We had no idea on the paperwork, the compliance. So we rejected the offer. And then the German importer came back to us and said, how about we teach you to export, teach all the paperwork and we'll pick up the gin and we'll pay for it in advance. And it was amazing. They taught us how to export. And since then... Four years ago we've now landed in 19 other countries including i think it's 15 states now in the u.s and it's crazy you know this is the thing about the whole business that really is the, the bit that i love is when i hear that someone's drinking our gin in hawaii in <laughs> singapore and it, it's absolutely mind-blowing because every bottle has been waxed and numbered by our team so it gives me a, like a huge left when i go to these places and i turn the bottle around and i see the batch who made it i can tell by the wax who waxed it and it just it's, it's single-handedly the best part about the, the the product that we've created is seeing it go on its travel and seeing people enjoy it
1: well it's it's a fascinating story i'm so so glad it crossed our desk i'm so glad we were able yeah. to get connected with you and uh, we wish you continued success earning export dollars for Scotland with a <laughs> with a with a rather unconventional product.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, great, great meeting to 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 you Boston. too, Martin. Thank you. Yeah, absolute pleasure
4: to speak to you both, and thanks for um, talking
1: to me tonight. Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation Okay, sweetheart. So, how are we finishing? Going to finish up today's program?
0: Um, well, we're going to be talking to Daniel S. Pierce, who's a professor, and uh, he's his book is called "Tar Heel Lightning." And what is the Tar Heel State?
1: North Carolina. North Carolina. And, and not only that, but Daniel is a huge fan of the Andy Griffith Show, which we used to watch when we were children. And he
0: watches the program days Yes, yeah,
1: and he, he just finished. Joey, I think I think he was going to I think he was going to load up a second one. (laughs) Well, I mean, I want
0: to point out one thing, by the way, that um, first of all, um, we're going to wish everybody a happy new year, right? And and point out that this is, in fact, the last 2019 program you'll be listening to. The next time we come to you, it will be the year 2020. The end of the decade,
1: depending on how you calculate it, it it'll be it'll be our seventeenth year.
0: We went enter our 17th year. In fact, when we started in 2004, I think that the only uh, podcast on food and drink at this scale was Splendid Table. And they're still going, too, which I guess tells you that people are interested in food and drink.
1: Anyway, let's let's do the White Lightning thing. huh?
0: No, Tar Heel Lightning.
1: Well, it's White Lightning. Oh, okay. Moonshine.
0: Daniel S. Pierce I don't know what the S stands for But I'm sure it's important Because it looks good on the page <laughs> um, You you have a book out Tar Heel Lightning How Secret Stills and Fast Cars Made North Carolina The moonshine capital of the world Now that's a mouthful <laughs>
5: yes. But
0: your first book was about The stock car racing in North Carolina, right?
5: Well, my first book was actually on the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And then oh, wow! My second, second was on on NASCAR.
0: Yeah, and, and you seem to think that um, that this moonshine really created NASCAR.
5: Oh, definitely. There's a there's a big connection between the two in terms of the the uh, uh, the dry, The early drivers were just about all people who had, uh, as I put it. Uh, had their first high speed driving experience behind the uh, wheel of a car hauling liquor, uh, illegal liquor. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, what was, and, that, what was that uh, TV? It pro- really that, permeated the whole thing. From wasn't
1: the, that TV program called Dukes of Hazard?
5: Yeah, it was, uh, yeah. That's actually built off of a nor- famous North Carolina moonshiner.
0: You are a serious historian. I mean, but you're fascinated with the history of this moonshine, right? There's so much <laughs> going on in your book. Um, well,
5: it's it, it's a fascinating subject. It's something that I uh, uh, came to in a, in a strange way, I guess. My um, I grew up. Um, my dad uh, was a Southern Baptist minister, and so I grew up in a very much a teetotaling household. So, <laughs> so uh, it's kind of a strange place for me to be. But uh, but the more I I looked into it, I I mean the thing that interests me as a historian, or how people um, find ways to adapt uh, in their life, particularly in dealing with difficult circumstances. And so a lot of these people were people who, you know, lived in poverty and and uh, in, in the South and North Carolina, you know, for much of, you know, post-Civil War, uh, up until really the 60s and the 70s, um, was in pretty dire straits. And so this was one of the main coping mechanisms for a lot of people because this is one of the really sure, particularly once Prohibition comes along, this is one of the the really sure forms of cash that people, uh, you know, had. And they they knew how to make it, and and, uh, there was a big market for it, and so people were willing to take the risk of getting caught.
0: Why don't you just fire moonshine?
5: Okay, technically, well, generally speaking, uh, again, you might find a variety of definitions, but it's unaged. Uh, corn liquor um, uh, made illegally. So there are uh, there is a thing now because there's, yeah, there's, I mean, there's, yeah it's people, called that people call legal moonshine, but yes. but that's really a contradiction because if it's moonshine, it's illegal. <laughs> yeah, well,
0: that's why I was asking about this because most of your book talks about the illegal stuff, but we've gotten people. Wanting well, us to sample uh, legal moonshine. Yeah, what they call white
1: whiskey, right?
5: Yeah, right. Yeah. And yeah. Why?
0: Is it made the same?
1: I think the white whiskey is probably made in a rather more sanitary fashion <laughs> than <laughs> the moonshine.
0: <laughs> so, anyhow, we were talking about white whiskey. Um, I had another interesting uh, discovery. I'd say. Is that there seemed to be in this whole prohibition thing and the illegal uh, liquor thing a place for everybody? You say there's a place for uh, um, women. I love the thing about the uh, the queen of of um, uh, what, what's her name? Oh, Betty Sam. Oh Betty Sam. I uh, love setting fire to the jail. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so. It, the,
5: you know many colorful characters, right? Well, that was uh, that was you know one thing that uh, that kept it um, endlessly interesting. I'll, I'll put it that way because uh, you just you, you come across some uh, figure and you really don't mm-hmm. think that uh, uh, anyone could top that, and then you and, and then you find one that does. And it, and again, it was one of the most fascinating things for me was to look at the uh, because. You know, a lot of people had written about moonshine, but people really had not written about the women and the African yeah, Americans and Native Americans.
0: The African American involvement,
5: yeah, yeah. That uh, that really it was it was all over the state. People see it as a mountain thing with you know uh, white guys with overalls and long beards and oh, yeah. funny hats. And uh, but really, it was all over uh, all over North Carolina and all over the South and. uh uh, and as likely to be in a swamp as it was in a, you know, in a mountain cove. And again, there were just lots of you know, people really don't have that image of the woman moonshiner, but particularly in the late, um 1800s and early 1900s, it was, it was really common. For one thing, um, and one of the really fascinating things about that, it was kind of a social welfare system for, um, uh, women who were widows or who had been abandoned by their husbands, uh, who had, uh, particularly small children as a, as a kind of legitimate way in, in rural communities for them to support their families. And so it was kind of something that, um, a lot of times if they got caught, the judges would just kind of say, don't do that anymore and go along <laughs> with your family, you know, and so, cause they didn't want to put them in jail and, uh, uh, and they really didn't have facilities for that, you know. But then you had some women like Betty Sims who just kind of seemed to embrace the whole thing, you know, and d- just had this uh, outlandish lifestyle. And uh, and at least uh, in the popular press had this reputation of, you know, carrying knives and guns and, uh, you know, and fighting it out with the authorities and things like that, just like the men. But, uh, uh, but again, it was... Uh, really surprising in many ways when I kept coming across uh, all these women involved and so again I think that gives it a, a story and you know uh, makes it even richer that, uh, uh, than it was before.
0: Right. I mean really you say it really sets the the climate, the cultural climate of the stage right?
5: Yes very much so. I mean again it's just something that that really permeated um <laughs> You know, particularly in poor communities, but but even, you know, among wealthier people. You know, it's something that really just about touched everybody in the state in some way, shape, form, or fashion.
1: Now, and, I, uh, I remember on our first trips to North Carolina, and Anne used to travel with me quite often when I was traveling on business, but depending on where you were, you might have to brown bag it.
5: What's yeah, that was up was until... Like yeah, up until the '60s and '70s, and lots like yes, of places, yeah. uh, that was common. If if you were allowed to do that, <laughs> you were allowed to do it at um, all, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah but well, uh, West yeah. Virginia
0: was dry for as long as I could
1: remember. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, sure. Yeah, and so
5: I mean, yeah. People think about prohibition ending in the uh, thir- 1933, but but in in the South and uh, and in North Carolina, especially. You know, it persisted in lots of counties. Uh, well, we still have some dry counties to this day. Um, yeah.
0: We have we have one yeah. Pittsburgh neighborhood that uh, just in the last election uh, changed the, the liquor control laws. <laughs> I mean, it was they well, were now, dry till then. Uh, yeah. now, what, what's this connection with Andy Griffith?
1: Who's well, Andy Griffith? Well, you life. know,
5: Andy Griffith is from North Carolina. He's from Mount Airy, which is where the the, the Mayberry came from. And uh, that part of the state is was um, really um, a, and uh, across the line, because it's right on the Virginia line, uh, too, and across the line in Virginia is a real moonshine hotbed. So he grew up in an environment uh, where there was <laughs> moonshine, was, was uh, I guess you'd say, ever present. He, so he was like that, the
1: sheriff. That, Wasn't he like the sheriff?
5: Yeah, yeah. Right. He was the sheriff of Mayberry. And so it was something that showed up, but particularly in the early years of the Andy Griffith show, um, quite frequently.
3: And, And and and
5: of course, there's always been this fascination in the popular culture from, I mean, going back to the silent movie era, you know, and, uh, and, you know, everything from souvenirs and dramas and, uh, and then, uh, movies, television shows, all these things. It was always a big theme, but, uh, but he really, uh, he was one of the people that really kind of depicted in a pretty accurate fashion. I mean, for one, he had an episode about women moonshiners that, you know, nobody <laughs> uh, even thought about that. Or, and also about the relationship between sheriffs and these moonshiners who, um, particularly, you know, because it was against federal law because of the excise tax. Yeah, And most of the enforcement was by federal agents and local sheriffs kind of enforced it, but they had to run for re-election, and they had to be careful about antagonizing voters. And so uh, they tended to tread carefully. Uh, and But some of the things in the Andy Griffith show, like letting people go home to harvest their crops or,
3: <laughs> or uh,
5: letting somebody go home for Christmas, you know, as long as they agreed to come back, it was pretty accurate. That actually happened, you know, yeah. quite frequently. Uh, so there was, you know, we... You know, uh, Hollywood loved to play up on the uh, uh, the car chases and shootouts uh, between revenue agents and moonshiners. Right. But, but for the most part, you know, the relations were pretty amicable. You know, if you catch me, fair enough, and um, uh, you caught me and then I'll, I'll cooperate and, and the sheriff would say, okay, I won't haul you in and handcuffs, but you know if you disagree to show up in court on such and such a date, I'll just let you go. And they do it, you know.
0: Really nice, nice yeah. culture. Now you you really watch? You, you said you watch a, a Andy Griffith show every day.
5: Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I watch some today. You know, it's just I don't know. It's just uh, 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 old habit, but um, but um, you know he's he's. He's an old friend
0: in many ways. I see. <laughs> um, you know, we get a lot of um, information and, and requests to showcase um, moonshine today. I mean, we're in some kind of a renaissance of uh, this what they call moonshine, but as you say, it really isn't. When, why is it not so popular again?
5: I, you know, that's a good question. I think, you know, part of it is um, people have always been interested in it. Uh, and, uh, you know, people always ask me, do you, do you have some moonshine? You know, <laughs> and I say, well, um, uh, who's asking? You know? <laughs> and, uh, uh, or they'll say, I know where you can get some, and I'll say, I do too. And, uh, you know, so people are always have been interested in it, but, you know, having this, uh, well, for one, you had this kind of boom in the popular culture starting about 2000. There's a guy around here named Popcorn Sutton. Yeah, kind I love of, the name. <laughs> yeah, and he became this kind of nationally known and internationally known figure and was on several uh, cable TV shows. And then they had this moonshiner show on where that follows these guys that are making illegal moonshine and and so people are just fascinated with it and then the legal stuff um you know kind of gives them a way to um you know to to try it and uh, and drink it and uh uh without the you know that's that it's FDA approved uh <laughs> that it's legal and you're not risking uh anything there. Your, your, and, hair, your uh, hair
1: won't fall out and you won't
5: <laughs> go blind. Right. <laughs> go blind. <laughs> right, yeah. And there were you know, there were some pretty nasty things. You know, recently uh, you know most of the even the illegal stuff is pretty clean, but you know, back in the sixties and seven there were a number of uh lab alcohol cases. Lab yeah, alcohol, and,
0: uh, yeah, not could make you blind. Right. I know We used to have parties right. with that stuff. Yeah.
5: <laughs> well, and lead poisoning and things like that, that that went along. But
0: uh and I always tell
5: someone, I said if you're gonna get the illegal stuff then you really need to know the person that's making it. So yes. uh, <laughs> but again there's just this fascination with it and so these you know, the once they liberalized the laws in in um really throughout the South in very recent years to where you could have a small uh, craft distillery, people just kind of jumped in, in, into that market very quickly. And yeah, it's
0: well, craft amazing. everything now. It's a, it's yeah, a, yeah, yeah, it's amazing
5: craft. how you know. I mean, there there are new ones cropping up every day. I mean, we had the beer uh, thing here in Asheville that started yeah. oh gosh, about thirty years ago. But but yeah. we uh, have we and have now stills, people
0: popping up with the yeah, craft stills distilleries and all and Pittsburgh, lots of them. Yeah
5: yeah and that's only in the last um I'm trying to think you know seven eight years really that, right it uh,
1: is, yes yeah
5: that that's happened you know that the laws have been such, and there's still some kind of in North Carolina kind of some backward laws that they're still trying to get changed but yeah. uh that that limits some of the things they can do in terms of uh, selling directly from the distillery and things like that because you know, well, we that, have a
1: well this, this we is, have a
5: state monopoly here.
1: This this is a this is a book to curl up in front of the fire with a glass of whatever your favorite is in your hand <laughs> and, and le- learn a little bit about America's social history.
5: Yes. Well, I think so, and and, and I would recommend particularly during the winter something called apple pie warmed, uh, <laughs> and so you can. You can look that up, and it's uh, got apple cider and apple uh, apple juice and a little brown sugar and some cinnamon, and it really makes for a nice uh, nice drink uh, on a cold day. So it'd be a great place a way to curl up in front of the fire with that with with this book and uh, and some apple pie moonshines.
0: Great. Oh, Daniel Pierce, I don't know what you're going to come up with next. <laughs> again, <laughs> again, listeners, it's Tar Heel Lightning. And uh, it's 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 humorous, entertaining, but it's still serious history. So look at look it up. <laughs> All right.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you, Daniel.
0: <laughs> bye bye. All right.
3: Bye bye.
1: Y'all have a good day. Do you think we're giving away something about our ages when we talk about the Andy Griffith Show?
0: No, I never watch the end <laughs> The yeah. funny part about it is,
1: <laughs> and, and, and so else you can't even remember it. Oh, come on. You're so nasty. <laughs> uh, got you. Got you. Pooh. <laughs> so anyway, same time, same place next week, listeners. And, and you, next year. <laughs> you, you, and you, you may be sure we'll have fun like we always do every Sunday morning. So please remember to join us then. And in the meantime,
0: bye-bye.